Kia ora. you're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked. You know, we hear in the media constantly New Zealand punching above its weight, David versus Goliath, the, the, the underdog, all of those terms which are constantly in our narrative and, and constantly in my narrative and, and part of my upbringing that I was learning about as I was growing. And, and I always thought, where does the Olympic movement sit in that, in that space, I guess? What is its contribution to the development of who we are as a people and who we are as New Zealanders? A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. I think the only criticism I have is sometimes we as a nation are too hard on our sportsmen and women and that tall poppy syndrome, we expect to win and um, sometimes we don't quite get there and, and I think we need a more of accepting that that's okay too. At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarise what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. Kia James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena and I'll be the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James is in the room with the interviewees, I'll be sitting beside you, like that one friend watching their favourite movie, who chimes in every now and again, fills in the gaps, and makes sure you don't miss any good bits or laughs at James' expense. Whenever you hear the podcast beats, You know I'm about to come in and say something profound, life-changing, and hopefully meaningful. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Warren to discuss his thesis, Politics and Sport Don't Mix, or do they? National Identity and New Zealand's Participation in the Olympic Games. Michael's experience has seen him hold various advisory roles within government, as well as contractor positions with Sport New Zealand and the New Zealand Olympic Committee. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding, so we start the corridor off with James and Dr. Warren talking about why he chose to do this particular PhD. Our hope originally was to get this episode uh, recorded and posted more closely to the end of the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, but you know, COVID had, had other plans, but of course it's still relevant. But the Olympics for most people sort of has a, a cyclical form in that, you know, investment peaks every four years and then perhaps wanes over the next three. Today we want to lift the lid on the Olympic Games uh, more holistically and discuss how intrinsic it is to New Zealand's national identity. And I guess the first place to start is to ask you, you know, can you briefly tell us how and why you end up writing this PhD? Yeah, great question. I, I remember at primary school in 1996, I was nine years old and, and did a school project on the Olympic Games and which were being held in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. And I won the school certificate award uh, for that piece of research. And I remember thinking back, or remember watching at the time, Daniel Loder winning two gold medals, first individual Olympic gold medals in swimming for New Zealand and thinking, wow, how, is, how cool is this? that little old New Zealander are beating the likes of the United States and Russia and, and Australia in the in the swimming pool. And ever since then, it was kind of something that sort of captured my 
my imagination really around the role of the Olympic Games and the role of these sporting heroes up in lights and as you say every four years. Yep, it's that time again. Time to define some words. This time around we have a few to get through. Starting with national identity. It's pretty core to this PhD, given the title, National Identity and New Zealand's Participation in the Olympic Games. And Michael describes it as answering the question of, what does it mean to be a New Zealander? You know, we hear in the media constantly, New Zealand punching above its weight, David versus Goliath, the, the, the underdog, all of those terms which are constantly in our narrative and, and constantly in my narrative and, and part of my upbringing that I was learning about as I was growing. and. And I always thought, where does the Olympic movement sit in that in that space, I guess? What is its contribution to the development of, of who we are as a people and who we are as New Zealanders? Now, it's something which certainly isn't fixed. And if you asked somebody 40 years ago, it would certainly be a different answer to what somebody would say today. It's about who we are as a country and as a collective group of people. The next definition is around imagined community, which you'll hear in Michael's words. The idea is, is that not every New Zealander knows every other New Zealander, but we have an identity, something that brings us together. You know, the Prime Minister talks about in her COVID response speeches around the team of five million. What is it that we coalesce around and we can draw into? And, and sport is one of those key things that all New Zealanders, whether or not you're interested in sport, or you like sport, or you enjoy watching sport, the Olympic Games is something that everybody knows about and it draws people in together and everybody's got different perceptions of it, but it's that kind of thing that we coalesce around. I think the concept of imagined community is fascinating, especially, you know, we all grow up in different parts of New Zealand or, you know, the people living out there or they weren't born in New Zealand, but absolutely buy into New Zealand's national identity. And the more you travel and meet new people and I guess just discuss aspects of New Zealand culture and society, you realise that this concept of imagined community exists for everyone, whether you're aware of it or not, but it means different things to different people. And I guess what is clear in your PhD is that there's a reciprocity between how we view ourselves as a country and how the rest of the world views us and the kind of cyclical nature of the way we view ourselves is often dependent on the way we think other people view us and meeting people in other countries or people who aren't from New Zealand sort of feeds into how we view our own national identity because obviously we exist in, in a greater world. I guess before we go into the part of your PhD that, that looks so in-depth into all the Olympic Games that have occurred, I wondered if you could give us a brief sort of thesis statement um, for sport and national identity and I guess the idea that your your research as a whole sort of presents that national identity and sport and politics is this kind of intertwined uh, atmosphere that leads to this creation of imagined community or national identity just so that the audience has an understanding of the kind of the overview of the ideas that you're presenting for when we go through some of the specific historical events. Yeah, I, I think if you think about New Zealand, for example, which was the focus of my thesis, New Zealand's competed at the Olympic Games for over 100 years. And so through that, that, that is a long part of New Zealand's history since um, Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, for example. But through that entire time, every four years, New Zealanders competed on the world stage and our and New Zealanders have seen our sportsmen and women winning medals, competing, 
on that world stage and winning. And so those ideas about the underdog, they actually weren't, my thesis argues, they weren't born out of winning, uh, out of the All Blacks winning games. It was actually born out of out of the Peter Snells, the Murray Halbergs, uh, the Jack Lovelocks winning gold medals because they were the underdogs and they were competing on the world stage. So through the entire 20th century in New Zealand, we've been there at the Olympic Games, we've been competing, and those ideas that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast around the underdog David versus Goliath that we talk about that is in, so ingrained in our narrative now, that was through winning at the Olympic Games. And so the thesis, I guess, argues, if I was to create a broad statement, and it's very hard to do in, a, in a, such a large document. There's a reason but, why they're long. Yeah, they? but um, New Zealand's participation in the Olympic movement has not only greatly contributed to our national identity, it's also helped showcase our national identity and who we are as a people to the world. And that identity has certainly changed, and and we can touch on, upon that later in terms of how our teams go away and how they are perceived globally and how the story we want to tell about ourselves to the world. For sure. So you mentioned before, you know, we have a, a rich Olympic history in terms of number of games competed in and, and how long we've been competing in it. I'd like to look really closely at two Olympic games, which was 1948 uh, in London and 1952 in Helsinki, without sort of spoiling anything from my end, but who competed, who didn't compete and the state of politics and sport together after World War Two. why was that such an important uh, change, I guess, those two Olympic Games back-to-back when you examine the Olympic Games and politics and sports and the kind of big change that had occurred within the world? Okay, sorry, super quick Olympic history lesson before we cover some of the key Olympic years of the 20th century. The modern Olympics were revived in Athens in 1896 and were viewed as an avenue and vehicle to bring humanity together peacefully. New Zealand began competing at the Olympics as part of Australasia in 1908 and 1912. Kiwis technically won medals, but this was under the banner of Australasia. Then, in 1916, games were cancelled because of World War I. And finally, in 1920, we sent four athletes under the New Zealand name for the first time. Okay, back to the interview, y'all. Catching up with Michael, talking about the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Well, if we take a step back a little bit before then, 1936 in Berlin, this was the Hitler Olympics. So Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party had had assumed leadership in Germany, and the world turned up on the eve of World War II. Not that they knew it in 1936. But, of course, for New Zealand's point of view... We had a gold medal in the 1500 metres, Jack Lovelock, one of the finest running ra- running results for New Zealand at the Olympic Games. And then, of course, 1939, World War II hit. And in 1940 and in 1944, the Olympic Games were cancelled, just as they were in 1916. And at the end of World War II in 1945, the calls came again about restarting the Olympic Games. And London hosted in 1948. But it hosted without the losers of World War II. They were not invited to compete in those Olympic Games. So, of course, there was politics very much at the centre or at the heart of those discussions in, in 1948. In 1952, again, Helsinki hosted. So still in Europe, still post-war, very much gloomy times, rationing, all sorts happening. But it was a pretty momentous Olympic Games for New Zealand, 
with Yvette Williams becoming the first New Zealand woman to win a gold medal at the Olympics. But what you were starting to see in 1952, it was the beginning of the Cold War. So Germany were back in, in 1952, but what you were starting to see is the, the Soviet Union and the Americans really starting to ramp up the importance that they were placing on those events as a manifestation or, or, a, or a show of strength, so to speak, that really has continued to ramp up throughout the 20th century. So post-World War II, the, the Cold War, the global arms race was underway, but the global sporting arms race was also underway. And while New Zealand wasn't perhaps as uh, involved in a number of athletes since and medals won since, uh, I think it's important to note those years because there's such a key build-up to the politicisation of the Olympic Games on a world stage that obviously leads on in the next few iterations to events where New Zealand perhaps plays a greater part within the, the politics. 1964 and the reconstruction of Japan and importantly this, this story of, of Peter Snell and Keith Holyoke and I wonder if you could, you could speak to that Olympics and, and the Peter Snell and Keith Holyoke incident as kind of a symbolism of of how important the Olympics had become to New Zealand, both from a an audience perspective and a sports perspective, but how that was meshing with politics. Yeah, by nineteen sixty four, politics and sport, for anybody trying to argue they didn't mix, they absolutely were mixing. So, nineteen sixty four is actually seen as Japan's re entry into the world sphere after World War Two, and from a New Zealand point of view. We had some of the best runners in the world in the 1960s. Arthur Lydia and his team had gone to Rome and in the space of 45 minutes had won two gold medals. Peter Snell in the 800 metres, he was ranked 26th in the world, and Murray Helberg in the 5,000 metres. So in running, New Zealand had burst onto the world stage. In 1960 also was the last time South Africa competed at the Olympic Games before they were expelled. Uh, until 1992 for the apartheid regime. But in 1964, Peter Snell turned up and he was one of the hot tickets at the Olympic Games and he delivered the 800 and 1500 metre Olympic champion. And so New Zealand also won medals in sailing and then a bronze medal in the 1500 metres and also Maurice Chamberlain, uh, became the second or the third female for New Zealand to win an Olympic medal. So New Zealand had its best ever Olympic result to that date. But in terms of uh, New Zealand's role, there was a couple of incidents that kind of overshadowed things um, around the closing ceremony with the dipping of the flag and what was perceived as an insult to the to Japanese emperor. It was played up at the time. Um, the New Zealanders sort of played it off as a bit of a joke, but there were some political insensitivity given. Ultimately, it was smoothed over, but it just shows the importance of athletes competing overseas and living up to the standards of the host country who are receiving those athletes, but also back at home. Also, we like to think that our athletes are going away and holding up the highest of standards. In the 60s and 70s, something does start to change with the way that we as New Zealanders start to observe what is happening at these key events. Um, could you speak to, I guess, the change that occurred in, in those decades on 
how New Zealanders were viewing the Olympic Games and how that then translated to the sense of national identity and imagined community within the 60s and 70s. I think the big thing uh, during the 70s very much was the advent of television. So New Zealanders could sit down and watch their athletes competing and, and increasingly it was live or it was within hours of hearing the results. Before that we had the radio. So when you see a think about the idea of an imagined community and you think about listening to it on the radio and then suddenly you're seeing the pictures in colour in the 1970s. In 1974, New Zealand got colour television for the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch. You can suddenly see these athletes live and in colour. And that has an effect because it's not only the ears listening to the audio, it's the eyes viewing as well. And so that's a great coalescing moment. And in the 1970s, there were some wonderful moments for New Zealand. So everybody thinks about the men's rowing eight in Munich in 1972. And that was was huge for New Zealand. And one of those real galvanising moments. This was a team of athletes that had to fundraise. I think they sold a dream kitchen to get to get get the funds together to go to Europe to train to build up and then to ultimately win. And they were competing against the Eastern Bloc countries, who subsequently we now know were were on drugs, performance enhancing drugs. The focus was about winning, winning, winning. And here was New Zealand in that black uniform with the silver fern winning those gold medals. And and somebody asked me recently what was my favourite result for New Zealand at the recent Tokyo Olympics. It was the men's rowing eight winning the gold medal in Tokyo, backing up from what they had done in Munich. But also during those times, and you touched on South Africa, coming into the national consciousness was the apartheid regime in South Africa and whether or not New Zealanders should be playing rugby against an all-white South African team. And how did we think about that? And what did we think about that? And so what you were starting to really see as politicians starting to discuss those issues, they were in the media, they were in the news, and we were thinking about where do we stand on these issues? And so that was very much starting to come into fore in the the early 1970s. And, And by 1976, New Zealand was very much at the heart of that issue. And, and when, well, when the Olympic Games were held in Montreal, it was a 28 African nations boycotted because at the very same time those Olympic Games were underway, the All Blacks were playing rugby in South Africa and they were playing against an all-white team. And the world and the African nations were starting to vocalise and the idea of the sporting boycott started. And here it was in 1976 in Montreal and and the likes of John Walker who, who won the 1500 metres in Montreal, it was an all-white affair in the final. The African nations stayed home, they boycotted. Philbert Bailly from Tanzania, we all hear and know about that great competition between those two athletes. It never took place because of the sporting boycott. So sport and politics were very much meshing during that time. You make a really compelling case in your PhD that the way we view rugby and the All Blacks, putting them on a pedestal was a symbol of our national identity is is misplaced, particularly in comparison to how we view the Olympic Games and the opponents of the Olympic Games. And absolutely, I'm going to give you free reign to, to speak on rugby. Um, there's so much that builds up to that Springbok Tour of 1981 that perhaps doesn't get as much focus as it should. And it sort of ends up with this focus in 1981 here because it's surrounded by rugby on New Zealand home soil. 
is it sort of the perfect example of how the Olympic Games and rugby uh, are viewed within our our historical context of what happened in the 20th century and and everything you've just said about 1976 perhaps should be as well known as as the 1981 Springbok tour but is culturally undervalued perhaps that's a really interesting question and, and you're you're 100 right you can't view the 81 Springbok tour in isolation the hypocrisy of the Muldoon government uh, mm. from 75 through to through to 84 was stark and sport if you just view sport alone sport policy of that government in 1976 Muldoon said sport and politics don't mix we're not going to intervene in the All Blacks tour of South Africa we're not going to get involved there but in 1979 another pivotal event happened when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and part of the response to that was once again another boycott and that was led by Jimmy Carter in, in the US and Muldoon suddenly flipped and said, you know what, we're not going to Moscow. And huge pressure was placed on individual athletes, sporting organisations, the New Zealand Olympic Committee and others for us to pull out of Moscow. And in the end, the entire team bar four athletes, a modern pentathlete and three canoeists, including Ian Ferguson, who would go on to win multiple Olympic medals, attended. Fast forward another year from the 1980 uh, Moscow Olympics, suddenly Muldoon said sport and politics don't mix and we're not going to intervene in a rugby tour of New Zealand, which you know arguably led to one of the, the big forking of the, mo- forking of the road moments in New Zealand society in the 20th century. But there was multiple events that led up to that and you know the hypocrisy of Muldoon basically in the use of sport for his own political purposes was certainly on display. And so that time period between 1975 and which culminated really in that Springbok tour in 1981 was hugely damaging for for New Zealand. And, and, and it was a wake-up call too where those discussions about who we are in wider identity, not just our, our national identity in relation to sport, but wider our wider national identity really started happening. We also had the anti-nuclear protests starting, talking about whether we become nuclear free, all of these ideas around human rights, interaction with South Africa, they were all meshing during that time. And that was a generational shift after Vietnam. Younger people were coming through and saying, hang on, what we did and what was okay 20 years ago, is that really okay today? And that's the idea of right there of how a nation's identity evolves and changes through time. When you think about rugby, on the one end of the spectrum. When you compare it to the Olympics, which celebrates diversity of body shape, gender, lifestyle, it just makes sense to me that the Olympic Games should be something that everyone can celebrate in comparison to rugby, which I've always understood why there are people who have never kind of got the hype about rugby and the All Blacks. Um, and I'm, I'm just interested in your general thoughts on the Olympics and the All Blacks. You know, you've spoken about the David versus Goliath, punching above our weight. I know you say in the PhD that, you know, that hasn't been true for the All Blacks for a long time. They've They're been... expected to win. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And the other the other point that didn't my PhD didn't touch on so much was around the idea of the Paralympics increasingly too, representing New Zealanders as well. And so we watched Sophie Pascoe, who is who is a hero. She's a sporting hero 
and she's competing at the Paralympics. And I think the one thing about the Olympic movement is is that it is more accessible. For starters, it's bigger. It's multiple sports. It is more accessible to different types of sporting pursuits rather than rugby. But at the end of the day, you know, rugby is a big part of New Zealand's culture, a big part of our identity. All this thesis sought to do is to say, well, there are other sports, there are other sporting events, and I think the other thing that this thesis looks at too is around the fact that rugby's big in only a few countries. So you think about the Rugby World Cup. Realistically, four or five nations have only got a realistic chance of winning. New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, England and somebody else. The French, maybe. Where at the Olympic Games, you've got countries from more than 100 countries winning a medal at the Olympics. Fiji, for example, and I know they won their medals in rugby, but for a population of 1 million, how cool was that? And I remember seeing it in 2016 at Rio when the Fiji men's team won their first won the first ever medal for Fiji and the celebrations that took place back in Fiji. And the whole world were captivated by that, not because it was rugby, but because it was a small island nation in the South Pacific winning a gold medal. And it, there was global fame for Fiji and it put them in the global spotlight and people were talking about Fiji. So the reach and impact of the Olympic movement is also much greater than rugby. New Zealand's national identity has, has clearly been influenced in both positive and negative ways by the Olympic Games and specifically, you know, political decisions associated with the Olympic Games uh, lead to, the, I guess, the, the short-form, blunt version of that, which is the Olympics are really important. And when you think about it within politics and sports, it's almost inarguable. And the second conclusion is that sports as a whole only becomes a part of national identity when politics elevates the sports. You know, who are we competing against? How much does it mean to win? What does it mean to lose? You know, participation is a message in of itself. And then competition as a message. You know, how important is it for us to do well against other people? Um, are those two of the, the key messages that you kind of came to when you were thinking on your findings and writing the conclusions of the PhD? One of the interesting things, I guess, over the past 20, 20 to 30 years now is in a multitude of countries, not just New Zealand, Australia, Great Britain, the investment that is going into, into high-performance sport and the idea that high-performance sport and winners leads to greater participation in sport um, is stark. So, so for example, in Sydney in 2000, New Zealand had one of its worst ever Olympic results, one gold and three bronze. The Olympics were held across the Tasman. We were expected to do really well. We didn't. And what you saw after then was a huge um, shift in the support that started going into high-performance sport in New Zealand, and that was led by Trevor Mallard and the Labour government. And throughout the 21st century, as we've progressed, New Zealand's results got better. Money, in a sense, cynically does equal medals. And why? It's a political decision. The government wants New Zealand to do well on the world stage. It does drive um, interest in New Zealand. It drives and helps shape the narrative and shapes our identity and how we portray that to the world. But at the same time, it makes New Zealanders feel good about themselves. If you look at television ratings going back 
the last 40, 50 years in the top 10 events. You know, there are Olympic moments in there, sporting moments. New Zealanders do watch and they engage. And increasingly it's more diverse. It's not just watching television. It's not just listening to the radio. It's it's social media. And you look at TikTok and you look at Instagram and you look at the followers that our some of our sporting heroes have. It's huge. The numbers are huge. So And it's young people engaging with them. So... The idea of of our sporting stars as as being, you know, intertwined with politics, absolutely. Sportsmen and women need politicians to be supportive, to give them the funding to go away and compete, and politicians need them to win. So it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. I found this last Olympics, you know, exhilarating. You know, Emma Twig winning a medal after 13 years, Dylan Schmidt winning bronze in, in the men's trampoline of all events, you know. Hayden Wilde winning bronze in triathlon after only beginning to sort of explore the sport seriously after having watched in Rio Lisa Carrington becoming New Zealand's most successful Olympian. You know, there are these stories of of inspiration. You spoke about participation being driven by the Olympic Games. I'm just interested in your thoughts on the Olympics moving forward as they come around every four years or every three years as, as the next one is and what it means to us as the 21st century continues to unfold and how we think about national identity so if you think about the the sports that are being competed at at the Olympics, there's been a real drive over recent iterations to modernise the sports that are being competed to give it, make it more accessible to young people. So, for example, in Tokyo, there was rock climbing, there was skateboarding, there was surfing, brand new events on the Olympic programme to help drive where youth participation is, so to keep the, the Olympic Games front of centre for young people. So moving forward, the idea of ensuring that the, the, the sporting program is representative and is, and is speaking to young people is really important because for the Olympic Games to continue to be something that people will watch every four years, they need to relate to it. So that's really important. And, and I think the Olympic movement and the IOC have done some good work around modernising the Olympic program, but also trying to make it more sustainable. The Olympic movement. It is a big event. It's huge. And one of some of the criticism the Olympic movement gets is, is that they, they roll into town into these big cities every four years and they leave white elephants. They're not sustainable. They're too big. They're too expensive. And so the Olympic movement are responding to that and they, they need to, frankly. I think the other, the other thing to think about in terms of the Olympic movement and, and where it's going is around the work that the New Zealand Olympic Committee has done their online presence, their, the work they do in showcasing athletes and making them accessible is pretty progressive and the stance they take on a lot of issues is very progressive and, and out of all the National Olympic Committees around the world, the work that the New Zealand Olympic Committee has done over the past two decades and, in, and more importantly over the past 10 years has been really important. Um, that organisation led by Karen Smith have, have been sort of cutting edge globally and even during COVID times when the families couldn't go to, to Tokyo to watch, they set up a fan zone in the cloud in Auckland and, and 30,000, 40,000 people turned up during those two weeks to cheer on the athletes. So they are doing what they can to make it accessible to New Zealanders and they've got to keep doing that, frankly, because if it's not front in mind and if we don't have a reason to watch, people will turn off. And absolutely the hope is that the Olympic Games continues to 
develop and change as the rest of the world continues to develop and change. And it will be fascinating to see how uh, the national identity of Aotearoa continues to adapt as the Olympics continue to adapt the Brisbane Olympics. Wouldn't that be a fascinating case study of, of how does the New Zealand national identity towards the Olympics change when it feels so much closer geographically? And, and how does NZ Inc.? Uh, leverage those Olympics whether it's visiting teams coming down under to set up and train are we going to try and attract some to come and prepare here similar climate same time of the year Um, is there are there other business opportunities and so that's the other thing about the Olympic Games which New Zealand has started to think about and they very much have with rugby is 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 how do we generate economic activity out of that how do we take exporters to those events to drum up business for our exporters. Um, those are the spin-off things we need to do more in thinking about moving forward because it's not just about the sporting event, it is about how do we leverage that to to, to make New Zealand's, stamp New Zealand's mark on the world, world stage. And ultimately your PhD is all about how do we as individuals link the Olympic Games to our own personal experience as being New Zealanders and I think you've touched on the fact that you know politicians economists they're understanding the importance of the olympics with how we view this imagined community and how the new zealand public as a whole continues to view those events so for my loyal fans out there who listened to episode one and two you'll know that this is the point in which we ask where's the hope what can we look forward to But it's not really the vibe for this episode, so instead, we asked Michael if there's something that people don't ask enough. Essentially, passing him the mic and asking him to go off. The world are sitting up and noticing New Zealand, and what are we doing down here in terms of our results, our performance? You know, in Tokyo, 20 medals for a nation of 5 million. That's pretty extraordinary. That was our best ever result in terms of total medals won. So we're doing some innovative things down here and and the use of that the idea of that sort of kiwi ingenuity number eight wire mentality means that our sportsmen and women they might not have in terms of raw dollars the 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 support that are going into some of these big countries but you just got to look at the medal table you just got to look at the the per capita medal table new zealand are there or thereabouts is number one in the world and that's the one thing a lot of new zealanders do think about at that per capita table, that does come top of mind quite often. Sometimes I think the only criticism I have is sometimes we as a nation are too hard on our sportsmen and women and that tall poppy syndrome, we expect to win. And um, sometimes we don't quite get there and, and I think we need a more of accepting that that's okay too because uh, the pressure and stress that goes on these athletes is, is, is huge. And we saw that in the recent... Um, death of Olivia Podmore in, from cycling and those who don't make the Olympic team who have trained for four years, that's tough that's really tough and so the network of support that sits around for New Zealand 200 athletes that go to the Olympics, it's a huge infrastructure and it's operating every day up and down the country and so that imagined identity that we have as, as a people with that connection to the Olympic movement very few of them reach that pinnacle, even fewer win the gold medal, but the, the network that sits underneath it, it does crisscross cultures, it crisscrosses all of New Zealand's geography, and at the end of the day, we're all trying to be better, and 
to win that gold medal. It's pretty cool. A big thank you to Michael for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Michael's PhD, which can be found in the bio of this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Gloria Fraser about her PhD, Rainbow Experiences of Accessing Mental Health Support in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a community-based mixed method study. And I think that sometimes mental health professionals, and I think I've been guilty of this too, can kind of go, well, I'm a psychologist, of course I'm trustworthy. People can trust me. They'll show up and they'll just open up and that's how it goes. And I think sometimes we don't think about the fact that we actually have to earn people's trust um, and do that in a continuous way. To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. And before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Hope you enjoyed this ASMR. Ma te wa.